0: So I've been around a bit, and once upon a time, when I was a cocky little punk, I'd probably say something along the lines of, I know I'm a good writer. And lately, some young scribes have said to me and my colleagues, and I quote, I know I'm a good writer, but... And the but is inevitably followed by, I just need a chance, or I'm not sure what direction I want to pursue, or I also have so many other skills. And my advice to you, if you're one who says, I know I'm a good writer, is... Stop saying it. Seriously, stop saying it. It comes off as nothing but arrogant and tone deaf. I'm on my 10th book. I've won a bunch of stupid writing awards, and I swear to fucking God, I hate almost everything I put out there. It's all just so hard and haunting, and it's rough, and it's shitty. And truly, I've never, ever, ever heard a writer who I admire say, I know I'm a good writer. Because in a weird way, maybe being a good writer means thinking you're awful. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Kate Fagan, the former ESPNer, the recent Meadowlark media hire, and the author of a fabulous new book, All the Colors Came Out, A Father, A Daughter, and A Lifetime of Lessons, that delves into her late dad's ALS. This is episode number 215, Let's Sing Some Yang. Dad,
1: yeah, your podcast sucks. You're losing your hair.
0: All right, Kate, first of all, thank you for doing this. I feel like um, we probably have a million different people we know in common, but this is a first uh, a first meeting. So uh, your book, uh, All the Colors, came out. It's funny. A friend of mine said, Kate Fagan, great writer, great writer, blah, 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 blah. And um, I was flying. So I went and I bought your book. And as you can see, uh, listeners can't see, but you can see, on a vomit bag, on my airplane vomit bag. <laughs>
1: They
0: still I have love those? <laughs> they do, apparently. They're good for bookmarks and <laughs> taking notes. And I have the words on top of uh, the top of my vomit bag. I wrote, why would you want to share so much of your life? Underlines, <laughs> question mark, explanation. And the book is about uh, your relationship with your father who had ALS and died of ALS somewhat recently and sort of, in a way, your returning home and also your reevaluation of your own life. And I did keep thinking, why would someone want to share so much of their life in a book?
1: Answer that question. I think this book is probably the, the product of what well, I actually think it might be the product of coming out and having written a book years ago that was a, about me playing on a college basketball team and realizing I'm gay. And once I, and that, that was my first foray into telling a personal story. And you think when you when I was doing that 10 years ago, I, I felt like I was taking a chance that telling the story of coming out and the, the obstacles and the interactions, I was taking a chance that other people would relate to it and find their own story in my story. But I wasn't sure that was going to happen. And the feedback from in the little world that that book was written for, like women's college basketball in that little world, there were so many former players who felt so seen by that book. And so I really took from that experience that these small, sometimes very small details of your life, or in the case of this book with my dad, these big experiences that I'd already had that experience of sharing it with people and feeling that there was a ton of benefit in it, not just for them. Uh, You know, we all say like, oh, we want to help people. And not that I don't want to do that, but I try to be very honest about my motivations. And in addition, it was very, it's very helpful for me. So when it came to this book, if I hadn't had that past experience, I'm not sure this book exists. I probably just, I probably at that point in my life, 37 years old, think I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dive into this big of sharing, but I, I had been incremental along the way.
0: But I'm actually, I, this, this podcast goes in a million different areas. The book you, uh, you wrote, which was your first of three was called the reappearing act coming out as gay on a college basketball team led by born again, Christians, which That's is a
1: subhead for you.
0: The subhead is the best freaking subhead of all time. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it, I'm, I actually mean that that is a subhead that makes you want to buy a book. Um, <laughs> I imagine when you wrote that and when it came out, tell me if I'm wrong though, your former basketball teammates at the university of Colorado must've been like, what the flying fuck is this? Like, were they?
1: Oh, yeah. And when you say former, former, that is the key word in that question, because those relationships, well, one, they didn't survive the coming out process because they really were dedicated to their religion. But when I then wrote the book about it, it's like I I, you know, I touched the third rail when it comes to I'm not even sure if that metaphor (laughs) applies for this, but it's like I it was the unwritten rule that you don't you know, you don't write about team experiences unless they're positive kind of thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm persona non grata with most of most of that team, but they're still born again, fundamentalist Christian. So I'm not that upset about it.
0: Wait, I'm curious. Again, I jump around a lot. What was your best yeah. response reaction from that book from someone?
1: Well, the, it was actually an experience. After the book came out, I was invited to one of my college teammates wedding and there was like eight to 10 of us there who were on those teams and one table of six who were all still religious at a wedding didn't talk to me like and we were seated in the table next to each other and I went the whole wedding without speaking to any one of them like whenever I would walk somewhere they would kind of turn their backs to me so that there was no reason for us to interact so that's pretty much the um the, the physical manifestation of the impact of that book on those relationships.
0: When that's going on, is there a party that gets it? Like, you're like, I get it. You're mad at me. Like, I understand why you're mad at me. Or are you more like, fuck all you people?
1: Um, Now I would be more both of those things. Like, guys, <laughs> fucking come on. But th- when that book, this was 10, 11 years ago, maybe like I was 29, 30 when that book came out or whenever it was. And I just wasn't yet ready to be so, I was I was still at the point where I wanted to write the book, but I didn't want to say the things to them. Whereas now I I would do both of those things. Right.
0: So did that yeah. experience, you feel like that experience hardened you, hardened might be the wrong word, but sort of allowed you to see the benefits, the pros and cons, et cetera, of putting yourself out there and writing a book like All the Colors Came Out?
1: Yeah. I, I think that it, it opened me up to the idea that writing so deeply and personally and trying to be as brutally honest as I can be about the things I think and say, that it one makes me feel less like a monster because I think we all have things that we think and we're like, wow, did I just think that about that person or this this situation? I think it really got me to a place where I feel that writing I'm in this place where writing personally, personally and deeply makes me feel more connected to humanity.
0: When you write a memoir and it's really, really personal. And you're writing about your dad and it's really, really personal. I feel like you do this, something really well with this book, which is it's not just like, it could easily have been an ode to your dad. Like it easily could have been an ode to your dad. And that would have been a perfectly nice, fine, whatever thing. But it really isn't. It's a lot of like self-doubt and kind of self-loathing. And there's a part where you actually question, you're sitting with your dad and your dad is ALS and you're almost wondering, am I being this way because it's a natural thing to be caring for someone you love? Am I being this way because I'm imagining myself in a movie and this is how you're supposed to act when you be that way? Like It was multiple layers of sort of in-depth thinking and oftentimes self-loathing I know it's a big, broad, fat, weird, not very good question, but like, how do you even get to that point where you dig beneath the surface and you're able to express it in words?
1: Well, when I started the process of writing this book, which was very soon after my dad's death, I asked my mom if she would if she thought if she would be okay with it and if she thought my dad would be okay with it about two, two and a half months after he died. So really soon, right before the pandemic, right before the pandemic hit, a couple of months after he died. And I think one, one of the many reasons I wanted to write the book was that I was kind of mad at the books and media I had consumed that shaped how I behaved during that year with my dad. In that I had read Tuesdays with Maury, and in it, Maury Schwartz is. A beacon of philosophy and light and goodness and mitch album in telling that because he's not the primary caregiver shapes this notion of like stopping by and it's beauty and kindness and goodness and we all share zen philosophies about life and that's tuesdays with maury but tuesdays with maury fits a very uh, fits a canon of books and movies that i think we consume and having consumed all of that and having expectations of how I would feel and how my dad would behave going into this last year with him that I didn't know would be his last year, but obviously I knew he had a terminal illness that's 100% fatal. I had a lot of interactions with him where I was judging the shit out of him. And where I felt like the things I was thinking about and doing while I was in these moments with him were too meta and shaped by culture and all of these different things. So the reason I in, in answering your question, I guess what I'm saying is that I spent a lot of time trying to get at how I was feeling and why I was behaving the way I behaved because I didn't I had never read a book that really tried to share those things. I'm sure they exist. I'm not saying I've written a book that says things for the first time in human history. It's just I hadn't read any of those. I hadn't so I've definitely in the in the kind of cliched way, I read, I wrote the book that I would want people who might be facing situations like this with loved ones. I wrote the book that I would think would give them like a play by play manual of what might happen, ways people behave, things you might think that not enough people are telling you or, or talking about.
0: I'm kind of fascinated Tuesdays with Mari, <laughs> are we doing a disservice in a way by presenting sort of end of life stuff, blah, 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 as this, you know, I read it too, Tuesday, like this jaunty little, you know, look, here's this guy and he's going to give you life lessons and everything's going to be great and blah, blah, blah. Is there a, a level of disservice to that? Or is it, is that going too far?
1: I think that's going too far. Cause I do think it has its place, but like I try and write about in the book, like at the end with my dad, where a lot of the things we're talking through in his final 48 hours are like fights we had as opposed to just the, the beauty and, you know, philosophical nature of what it might feel like at the end of your life. I think what Tuesdays with Maury doesn't do is give you the texture and the darkness and the bitterness along with the pearls of wisdom, which. uh, So I I think that it's nice to have this place where you can have the pearls of wisdom, but I think when, then when people go forth and they find themselves in these situations Mm -hmm they can't help but measure themselves against the Pearl of Wisdom book, like the very pure, beautiful Pearl of Wisdom book. And like that's not that book is a a very specific slice of something that is clearly not even trying to be the whole.
0: Do you ever see the movie Parenthood?
1: Yes. Back in like the late 90s. Yes.
0: There's a scene at the end of Parenthood when the last scene is they have a baby and the dad walks out and he says he takes his mask off and says, My wife is fine. It's a girl. It's a girl. And when my daughter was born, all I wanted was a parenthood moment, right? All I wanted was that parenthood moment. And I bring my daughter out and there's a a Hasidic Jewish man in the lobby and he comes up to me and he immediately started asking me if I'm going to raise the kid Jewish and what's the gender. And I actually, I swear to God, I turned to the guy and I said, you are ruining my parenthood moment. And (laughs) I feel like people want a Tuesdays with Mari when you're dealing with an, a, a relative who's dying or near the end, you want that Tuesdays with Mari moment. And for a lot of people, it must be a little disappointing not to have it.
1: Yes. And I think I was disappointed at times with my dad and that's so unfair. And so I didn't want to write a book that perpetuated those ideas, even though those ideas would probably, they're more palatable. Right. I mean, more people want to buy a book that just shows you, the easy end of life care that is all about acceptance and beauty. I mean, that's what we, that's what we'd rather read about than the shit that comes along with it.
0: But that is so interesting. If you would written this book and this book, were all about lessons from my dad in his final days with ALS. And then he closed his eyes for the final time. And I felt the tap of an angel on my shoulder. Like <laughs> you would quadruple your sales and you'd be, Oh, and then if at the end you said like, and then you realize that being gay wasn't important, you'd be on the Christian speaking circuit for the next 25 years eating caviar. You'd be money. <laughs> that's right, that's right.
1: Russian caviar. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many things that I've realized now that that I did in this book that I think I, I wouldn't want it any other way, but it makes it less sellable.
0: Right. Uh, you wrote on page 142, not that that matters. You were talking about, when your dad was in a very bad place, he had the option of whether to get a trach tube, which would have ext- would extend his life. And you wrote, um, maybe this helps explain my reaction on that walk with my mom. I felt conquered. When it came to my dad, I wanted to run the full course with him. Hell, I even wanted to run that extra bit. But a ventilator, that would extend the course another 10 miles. And if he did that, I would have to stop running, look down on my watch, and see a fractured number. If that happened, it would feel like I hadn't shown up for him at all. I was angry at him for this. That's not fair. And I know it makes me seem selfish, but honestly, I was angry. Instead of being the daughter who played her heart out until the end, i become the daughter who gave up, who didn't have the stamina. He's going to steal something from me. It's fucking so freaking good. This is a little geeky of a question, but like you're going through these emotions in the moment of of your dad's uh, illness and then ultimately passing. Are you taking notes as this is going on Or are you just, I mean, a memoir obviously relies a lot on memories. Are you just relying on memories and sort of thoughts as you're writing?
1: I didn't take any notes because until after my dad died. In the weeks after, I started to write things down and started to outline what I thought the story was. But until until he died, I didn't think I was writing a book about him. I mean, of course, I'm a nonfiction writer, so there is a chance that as things are happening i'm filing them away but the thing the thing with als and with a lot of the stories in the book and the moments in the book is that it's such a repetitive disease in that the conversations i'm having with my sister with myself or with my mom we have them every fucking day for six months because it's 100% fatal. And you get to a certain point where you know where this train is headed, you you can't live in a different world where maybe it's going to stop spreading. It's like, this thing is going toward a finish line. And so a lot of what I write about in the book and the emotions I'm feeling, I didn't feel them once. It was every time I went home, I went out to Starbucks with my sister and we just downloaded about how fucking crazy it is that we're still in this place that we're in this kind of trapped limbo and that it, we could be in this forever. So I think the book benefited from, from the fact that some of these emotions were, became embedded in me because I felt them for so long and I had so many conversations about them.
0: Is there a part of you? Cause you're so you, again, you question yourself a lot. And I was wondering like, when you're pitching the book or when you're going to your mom and saying, I'm thinking of writing this book, is there a part of you? And I'm not saying this, is you should feel this way at all. It just seems like something that might have crossed your mind. Like, is there a part of you that's like, am I taking advantage of my dad's death by writing a book about my dad's death?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I... I think I was more worried about that. And this goes back to our previous conversation five minutes ago. I would have felt worse about that if I'd written the Tuesdays with Maury book. Right. Because then it would have been pure capitalizing on his death and perpetuating this bullshit. Not that it is with Maria's bullshit, but I like a lot of those tropes. Um, but because I, I didn't think I was doing that, that I really I really do feel like I re- I wrote a book where I got to live with my dad for a little bit longer by writing all of this and writing these stories. And I genuinely felt like I captured something in the book. It took away some of that feeling. And it also helped that I talked, I explicitly said that to my mom when I asked her if she thought it was a good idea, if she would be willing to help me with it. I think I explicitly said, I don't want to feel like I'm capitalizing either. And she was like, you know, your dad, my my dad, like loved ESPN, loved doing radio hits with me when I was at ESPN. There was no part of me that thought he would think it was exploitative exploitative you would have thought that's right fucking honor me so all of those factors help mitigate that kind of that, that kind of weird non-fiction i'm um, taking people's lives and making money off of them
0: i just love i really mean this like um i've been saying this to my kids a lot lately we always feel guilty for things and we think we're the only ones feeling these things and the truth is humans aren't that unique like I was reading this book thinking there have been moments when I've pictured myself giving my parents eulogy. Right. And I'll be driving along and I'll be picturing what I'm saying. And then you picture people coming up to you afterwards and saying, wow, there was a beautiful speech and you feel, and then you're like, what kind of fucking asshole am I? My dad is literally <laughs> living in Somers, New York. I'm not giving it like he's alive. He, why am I? I just, I just thought there was a real universalness beauty to this, that the thoughts you were having are actually the thoughts shitloads of other people also have to and we are just kind of assholes not you know not literally assholes yeah yeah we kind of all have that in us a little bit we all we've most of us have probably given our parents eulogies in our head at some point
1: yeah and the point of doing that i mean i think when i have done that or when i was doing that exact same thing well you know at the end of my dad's life knowing that that was a thing that i could be doing soon i'm picturing the glory of giving a fucking great eulogy like Right. right like some of it is I'm sure I want to honor him and say things that makes people connect with who he was. But then, but then it's like the ego stroke of like, damn, you're a good public speaker. And that was a great fucking eulogy. And that's when, and I think that that's a perfect representation of the moments I fell into during the year of caring for my dad, where it became very much, it it became very much like my identity is now as the daughter who left ESPN to help care for her dad. Like now that's, I'm transferring my identity from ESPN, you know, to now I'm the, the sacrificial, like, you know, I fell on my sword to go help my dad. Like, and so I got to lean into that ego identity thing. And, and, and I think I reached a point while writing this book where I was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all in, you know, you can't try to, if you're going to do the Tuesdays with the Maury book or you're not. And if you're not going to do it, you better be honest about the, the things you thought that seem revolting to you in the moments that you're thinking them, because if you don't do that, you're going to be in that gray area where people can't connect with either the life lessons and they can't connect with your, you know, your selfish, egotistical nature. You, you got to pick one end. And I don't think this book is like a selfish book in any way. But I think I tried to make sure that people can connect with the with the very me first attitude that is inescapable as a human being
0: i'll tell you something that really resonated with me personally i was always a kid probably like you were i was a kid like your parents would brag about right like as far as like oh who's i saw jeff's byline in sports illustrated oh i saw jeff on the news talking about bliss oh i saw jeff's booking out and you get caught up in that right and you think you're something and you think it matter you think it matters that's a thing And you, yourself, you know, oh, Kate just signed with Colorado. Oh, getting that's amazing. Playing basketball. That's amazing. I just saw her on ESPN. That's amazing. Oh, I read her book. That's amazing. And at some point, you realize it's actually bullshit. Like you realize that it's no more or less important or impressive than fill in the blank job anywhere in the world. And Mm -hmm. I feel like your book fucking screamed that a million times over and it resonated with me very strongly that appearing on ESPN and having people say, Hey, I saw you on ESPN, not as impressive. And I'm not saying your job was impressive, but like in general, not as big a deal as we think at some point in our career.
1: You're spot on. I, that was, that, that was something I came to later in life than I wish I'd come to because that, that understanding that the, you know, the, the equation of, success equals happiness. Cause I think that's kind of the heart of it is you believe that people telling you, wow, Kate's doing amazing. Kate's on this Kate's on that equals happiness, somehow self-satisfaction, comfort, filling the the empty hole that all of us have. And it wasn't until mid thirties that I started to realize what a lie it was because you know, you, you probably experienced this at first, you, you reach like your first milestone of something that it's some goal you wanted. Like I'm writing for a big newspaper now. And then you're like, okay, well, this feels good, but not what I thought it was going to feel like, well, I guess it's that I got to write for a magazine. Oh, you know, and it's just a moving goalpost thing, but you have to hit a few of them before you start to realize that no goalpost is actually going to fill the hole in your heart. And I think I knew that by the end, by the middle of my time at ESPN, but it wasn't until it was juxtaposed with, okay, you know that the idea of working at ESPN is empty in a lot of ways, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And then on the other hand, you know, dad who showed up for you when you were a kid has a terminal illness. Are you going to keep picking the vapid ego stroke decision that maybe you could convince yourself was okay because nothing else was presenting itself, but now Dad is presenting himself as someone who needs you in some certain way now. And so that that was the crystallizing change for me that I think can often be the change for a lot of people, even though it's it's not a quick change. I think it's it can often be a very slow pivot to realize, okay i have to I have to get away from the addictions that I have.
0: Wait, serious question. How hard is it? So you're on ESPN regularly and people see you and, Hey, Kate, blah, blah, blah. And you're debating sports and, you know, Twitter following all that bullshit. Like how hard is it to actually divorce yourself from that?
1: I think the best way to, to, for me, the best way to show how hard it was was that I had a dad who spent all his, all my childhood with me. So I have a dad who like is pretty fucking great. And he had got what I think is one of the worst diseases you can get. That's hundred percent fatal. And it took me two years to pry myself away from the bullshit, some level of indoctrination about what our culture values. And that even if you know that you wish you didn't value it, you do value it. Like I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I, when I would go into a restaurant, they'd have a little board in the back, and they like they would if people came in that they wanted to like send extra dishes to, right? They'd be like, "Oh, seated at table three, you know, Kate Fagan, who works for ESPN." Like, do I wish I didn't care about that? Of course, right? But did it was it some level of like ego stroke to to know that? Yes, and so I guess how hard it was, and it's not just that. Like you could name a hundred things like that that come along with a job at ESPN, two years, two years to leave it. Because that's how, that's how addicting, I think jobs like that can be in our particular culture.
0: Once removed, is it really easy to see, oh, that wasn't so hard? Or is it, do you, are you sometimes watching ESPN and you have the shakes because why? I should yeah. be on there.
1: No, no, the the moment I was certain I was leaving, I was done like I couldn't be done soon enough. And I, once I got on the backside of being done at ESPN, I was like, how did this take me so long to finally separate from it? I mean, I even had and it, this is not an ESPN thing, but I think it's a this culture thing. I had good, good friends at ESPN who would be who were in certain layoffs over the last couple of years. And I I got coffee with them a day after the, you know, layoffs at various points. And they looked like a weight had been lifted from them, you know, and, and that's a lucky position to be in that you can, you know, get some level of severance and then walk away. But they all of a sudden felt like maybe they could reconnect with what life really is, because media jobs in particular, I feel like send you down a certain alleyway because you get you get stuck on Twitter. I mean, you, you can't be in media and not be on Twitter. And so it gets you stuck in a lot of different patterns that once you remove yourself from them, you start to realize how oppressive they were and how, I think, how limiting they are for like your thinking and your emotional, uh, I guess, abilities to, to connect.
0: So do you like the tranquility of just being an author? Is that sort of how you view this going for you like do you like sitting down with a blank computer screen and just sort of writing
1: yeah and and this was writing writing this book all the colors came out i mean this is this is another kind of like hard thing to say but i don't think i've ever been happier than those few months (laughs) and those were you know you're talking five it was, fi- it was probably I probably started three months after my dad died and it probably took me about five months to write. So pretty fresh after his death. And I've never been more peaceful, content and happy because that was the first time that I was writing. I think that was the first time I found that place where the simple act of writing and at the end of the day, having written whatever it was, 700 words that felt really strong to me was I was living in the idea of that creation being all that mattered. I wasn't thinking, what will Little Brown, my publisher, think about this? What will consumers think about this? How many books will I sell? Like, I wasn't even thinking about any of that. I was just very happy to be living in a memory of my dad and writing it in a way, and you know this as a writer, doesn't happen that often where you're like, the idea of it in my head is being reflected almost exactly on paper. And being able to reach that place consistently while writing this book was an experience unlike anything I'd had before. And so I told myself that's all I wanted to do from then on out. Of course, I had the fear that I would joke with my mom. She and I have a great relationship. I'd be like, I don't know what my next book will be, but maybe you need to die. I mean, jokingly, right? Like, because (laughs) I was like, well... How, how am I going to reach this place of really feeling connected to my writing again? Again, that, that was a very dark joke, but like these, this is the it. joke we would have with each other. Um, but then life happens and like now I'm working for a media company again. It's a different media company, but I, I think it's hard. It, it's hard for me to just be like a book writer because I, I have made, all books I've written so far are personal. So I can't just, you know, like a lot of the books you write, Jeff, I can't go find the next great NBA story or like, that's not my skill set right now. And so I wish I could live in a place where I just wrote books like this. Not like exactly like this, but I don't think that, I don't think I can. I don't think I know yet. I don't think I'm good at just doing one thing for very long.
0: I'm kind of fascinated. You, um, did you just sit down in the same spot every day, have a cup of something by your side, and write? Like, was there a did you have a, a routine and ritual to it all?
1: Yeah, for this book, I did, and aided, of course, because it was like the first six months of the pandemic. So I would sit either in our backyard or on our front porch. So it was like between two different chairs, and I would write for about three hours, and then I would, I would email whatever I'd written to my I mean I would email it to myself then I would go for a walk and I would put it in my notes app and because this was a thing that I that I started to find when I was working at ESPN and in journalism was you know because you you would write something at least I would write something in word and then you'd have to copy and paste it to send to your editor and I would read it in email as my final read and if so something about that final read in email transferred to this book where I would I'd want to read it like in a different screen than the thing I'd written it in. So I would take a walk and I would reread whatever chapter I'd written and like really fine tune it on like a long walk for, you know, an hour to 90 minutes. Just I'm sure everyone who passed me thought, oh, there's a millennial who just can't get off their phone walking around looking at their phone. Meanwhile, I'm like, you know, fine tuning some chapter about my dad's Death. But that was and I did that, you know, every day until we got to the end
0: of it. I was thinking two things. Number one, hey asshole, you're walking in the bike path. And then (laughs) That's right, exactly. (laughs) um, you were so you were sending in regularly as you were writing to your editor. So it was like write, send. No,
1: I was sending to myself. Oh, okay. I I wasn't sending to them. I didn't send to them until I had my first crack at like a it was probably about 70% of what it is now. Um, just to get their sense of because I read it, it's very stylized in a lot of ways. I try to have a story arc, but it's but you there's some jumping back in time. So I first sent it to them um, when it was about 70 percent of what it is now. And then they're like, we need more of this. We need more of that. We need more of, you know,
0: whatever. Well, I was going to ask you, like, um, <laughs> I write a book about Brett Favre and every word is very personal to me. At least feels very personal to me. And it's Brett Favre. You're writing a book about your father who passed of ALS and you're sending it to an editor and the editor's like, you need more of this, you need this, this. Is your first impulse, fuck yeah. you, this is perfect, or are you open <laughs> to the suggestions of someone?
1: I'm probably down the middle on that. I I have a great relationship with, with the editor. She did my my second book, and so this is our second book together. And she doesn't over-edit. But I did. I, I probably had about a day where when they first read the first draft and they got back to me and they were like, there's something special here, but that I felt defensive. Oh yeah. But then, but then I, I got out of that pretty quickly, but there were, but there were small things along the way where she would cut, I think probably about half the chapter she tried to cut like the last paragraph of, you know, and that's where you're doing your like writerly bullshit where you're trying to summarize and put the, like the exciting, literary flourishes on things so she kept trying to cut the end of chapters and i and i restored and she's pretty good about it. like if i fight for something she's like okay you know it's your name on it if you want to overwrite this go for it right um so i, I tried to restore a few of those
0: there's nothing worse <laughs> than writer duh, 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 nailed it editor x is the whole thing out oh <laughs> wait what
1: yeah yeah And then you feel like there's just there's so much questioning of yourself that I have in those moments, because I'm sure I could look back on 25 year old me writing and be like, oh, I see what my editor said. I think I understand what they thought, right? Like, oh, that was way that was way over explained or that metaphor is just so tortured. But I often now I will point out paragraphs to people and I'll be like, do you think that works or doesn't it work? The, it's in the book and i'm like what do you think about that line and they'll be like i love it i'm like that's right i fought for that line somebody wanted to cut that line and i fought for it so i like to just like it's almost like a a, a, a testing i'm doing on um on readers
0: before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor hey this is jeff perlman i'm here with my son emmett who started working today as a cit at a local summer camp so emmett how's that going it's okay why just okay well, it's a good amount of work and I get paid nothing and the bosses are sort of critical and I'm not even sure what I get out of it. Emmett, seriously, this is the point in the ad where you're supposed to say this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You've done this a million times. What the hell is wrong with you? Wait, wait, what were you talking about? My unpaid, unsatisfying job. Oh, right. I just want to say you, you set me up really well there. You said blah, 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 25-year-old me. I have a little story here, Keith, from the Glens Falls Post Star. Oh, Headline. Lord. Headline propels Eagles to upset. You may remember this game well. Dwaynesburg's John Sisonos shaved his head for Tuesday night's semifinal game against top seeded Rensselaer. Well, not his entire head. He went with the Mohawk look. Luckily for Sensatos, his tough hairdo mirrored his ferocious play as a 5'11 junior scrapped his way to 18 points, nine rebounds, and a logic defying defensive performance on the Rams' 6'6 post player, Keith Britt. First of all, oh, shit. Not bad. Okay. Actually. Pretty solid. Not right terrible.
1: There. Not. I really. I went hard on a local high school game coverage there. Well,
0: <laughs> I was kind of curious. Like, what? Um, you're a young writer. You're at the Post Star in Glens Falls. It's 16 years after that. Are you a totally different writer from the whatever 25 year old who's coming up? Do you feel like what you did at 25, you still do at 40? Are you, are you just a completely different entity?
1: That's that's interesting. It's funny. I feel like. Here, OK, here's here's my here's my metaphor for this, you know, clothing styles change over the years.
0: Not in my house.
1: <laughs> but you could, you know, like on fashion runways, they, they change, but not for you. So here's what I'm trying to, to piece together in my mind. I feel like there's no way to remember the fact that, like, when I was wearing bell-bottom jeans in the early 2000s, that that made sense then. Even though now I wouldn't do that thing, and so I can't go back. I, I, like, I can't feel the energy of like embarrassment that I was wearing something ridiculous because that would be an it would be almost like anachronistic of me to be able to do that. But that's not totally your question. But it's hard for me to remember what writing was like back then, except one thing. Now I'm, every sentence I read, I, f- I feel like I have a power now, not that it's a superpower, but my strength is knowing what's wrong with the sentence and making it right. I don't think I have um, great powers in terms of like the beautiful, perfect metaphor that certain writers can execute. And I don't have a great imagination for fiction, mm-hmm. so I, I what I don't remember doing back then when I was writing about uh, Dwayne'sburg and the Glens Falls Post Star. I'm not sure I would have been able to like analyze sentences and strengthen them to their to their strongest ability. And that's the one thing that I think I do now that I that I'm better at.
0: Wait, I'm kind of fascinated by saying I didn't even think of asking you this. Um, you played college basketball, Division One college basketball, high level basketball. I did not. Are you, are you at an advantage over me when it comes to writing about basketball? Like whenever I watch former NBA players analyze a game, I always think I'm learning nothing from you that I couldn't say myself. And that that doesn't mean you don't know more than I do. I just feel like, are you at an advantage understanding basketball to me? Or is that an overstated thing?
1: I think that's overstated. I think the advantage I probably had and this is a tangential advantage when I, like when I covered the Sixers for the Philadelphia Inquirer for three years, I think the, the players had more respect for me than they would have had for random 50 year old white dude journalist. Not that you're 50. I'm just saying like this average sports writer dude. So I don't think I had an advantage like, Oh, the pinch post at the elbow. Yeah, I can see that and no one else can see that or I understand spacing better. I mean, maybe there's some part of your brain that if you have if you had a basketball brain and you played it at a high level, things are more cinematic in your mind and maybe you have an advantage in being able to describe that cinematic movement cuz you've lived it so much. Mm-hmm. But other but I think that's very that's not about me playing. That's about just the way a brain works. And that brain could work that way for a lot of different people, not just an athlete. But I think having been an athlete gave me more access to players than coming in, not as an athlete.
0: That makes sense. When I'm actually fascinated by something, 2009, 2010, Oh God, covered, you covered the 27 and 55 Philadelphia 76ers coached by Eddie Jordan. And that season was interesting because a certain Allen Iverson, Age thirty four and quite reduced, returned to the Sixers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: what was that like to cover the return of AI?
1: I wouldn't have remembered their exact record, but that season was a train wreck. And I had I hadn't ex- I loved Philly, but I hadn't experienced what a Philadelphia excited about a team looked like because before that season they were the, an eighth seed and they played the Miami Heat. You know, so it was like I hadn't. I hadn't felt at the time it was the Wachovia Center. I didn't know like what, what these Sixers teams back in like, the early 2000s with AI, like what that must have felt like. Mm-hmm. And AI's return, his return game, the place was sold out. The first time it had been sold out since I'd been a beat writer. So that part alone, like the, elec- the electric nature of the arena, I hadn't felt before. And so it was a cool little glimpse into what Philly fandom can be. And just separately witnessing the ongoing drama that is Alan Iverson up close was fascinating. And your own behavior as a, a sports journalist, because I I remember distinctly Alan Iverson's introductory press conference really he's so heartfelt and he really connects and you feel his presence and his like heart in everything he does. And you're like, oh, he's invested in this. Like, this is an opportunity. There's a chance for him. And then the, that game that I'm mentioning, the opening game at the Wachovia Center, he's not there on time. And, you know, you know, because you're, back then you had pregame locker room access and Allen wasn't on the court, wasn't in the locker room. And then you see him walk in, you know, about, f- you know, 55 minutes before tip when guys have been there two hours before tip. And everyone just kind of looked around and the the Sixers staff and personnel were like, can you just do us a favor and not write about this? And, and I, and I didn't, no one, no one wrote about it because it just felt like it was this moment in this thing. And we didn't know why he was late, but, so it was like small little things like that, that I'd never, that had never happened before, but it was like a glimpse into what, covering those two thousand, those early 2000s teams probably was like.
0: Interesting question. In hindsight, should you have written about it?
1: I don't think so, because I think because I'd written other things about that team that in retrospect now, I feel like was more about youth and trying to be like the ball busting truth teller. And and I and some of that was motivated by my own like, ego. And the truth, but like my own ego. And I think that with that moment, I think there was a, a place to allow some grace for him and for the moment for Philadelphia and for the opportunity that we could either like write some snarky op-eds like Alan irison late to his first game back, or we could just, just step back and see if like this beautiful moment and this return to a city that loved him could just, Sometimes you just want to let some beauty happen in the world and you don't want to have to be like the snarky newspaper writer who shits all over it just because someone was seven minutes late.
0: Was it pretty obvious that the Iverson return was not going to be a long lasting show?
1: Considering that was the opening night and he was late. Yes. (laughs) And it went very quickly downhill from there. So you know, I think – and that's part of why I think not writing about it was the right decision because, like, if it was going to go downhill, it was going to go downhill. And we didn't need that moment to tell us. And and there was, like, a steady stream of he's going to miss this game. He's going to miss that game. He's doing this. Actually, he's not playing the rest of the season. I think he only played in some – you could look it up. You're there. Like, he, he only played in a few games before, for personal reasons, he took the rest of the year off. Yeah little AI
0: talk. You can tell AI stories for days and days and never get all of them. Oh,
1: yeah. Never.
0: Yeah. I just want to say real quick, when I was at Sports Illustrated, they signed me an AI story and I, um, I wasn't covering basketball, but they and I went down and the first day I showed up at practice and they said, yeah, you can talk to Alan Iverson. And I walk in and he's literally on the phone going, bitch, I told you blah, blah, and He's screaming on the phone. And I'm like, okay, I'll come back later. The next day I show up, he blows me off the day after that blows me off again. I fly on the road to travel to get him. He blows me off the third time. Finally, Billy King, the GM at the time says, um, he's like, have you got, it's the last day I'm going to be there. He's like, have you got an AI yet? I'm like, uh, no. He's like, come with me. The game is over. It's in Orlando. He takes me into the magic locker room. Billy King walks up to AI. Alan Iverson goes, where's this sports illustrated guy? I raised my hand. I'm like me. He's like, walk with me. We start walking. He's going to give me time walking from the locker room to the bus all of a sudden, while we're walking, Warren Sapp of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers jumps out of nowhere. They start talking. We get to the bus. The motor's running. The bus is waiting to leave. Larry Brown literally walks by us, gets on the bus. Iverson turns to me and goes, all right, what's your question? And I'm like, don't worry about it, man. He's like, OK, see ya. And he jumps on the bus. I sit down to write this kind of I decide I'm going to write a piece about me getting blown off by Iverson, which is very baby. Yeah, yeah. My phone rings. It's a Phillies PR woman. She goes, we got AI on for you. And he gives me like 45 minutes of awesomeness. And I ended up not. Oh,
1: my God. Okay. So now we're going to swap AI stories. Because I went, uh, the year after he played for the Sixers, the return we just talked about, he signed with a team in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. And I fly to Istanbul (laughs) to write the AI is in, you know, he's not exiled, but he's playing in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And I want to know what this is like. And so I'm it's a quick trip because newspaper budgets are going downhill and I'm there for like one full day. And he, he knows it. He knows I've flown from Philadelphia to fucking Istanbul. And I get to the practice, watch the practice, practice ends. He comes out and he says, let me shower and then we'll talk. And then he went out the back door and never came back. And um, I think I probably, and what I ended up writing was like, I, I ended up, you know, talking to a lot of people in Turkey, you know, like at restaurants and places and trying to gauge whether the AI being there was a thing Mm -hmm. or whether it wasn't a thing, whether he was just like a small little blip because they cared about, you know, soccer and other things. So I tried to write that story. But um, I I was a little I was a little um, sheepish going back to my editors and being like, so you sent me to Turkey and I didn't even get AI.
0: You know, of all the athletes out there, Iverson makes me the saddest because um, I feel like he's forever frozen in the year like 2000. Yeah. It just kind of breaks my heart, actually.
1: Oh, yeah. He breaks my heart because I fully believe that he intends to be he intends to be heartfelt and show up. Like, I think he really believes he's going to be those things.
0: Yeah, right, right. Um, let me ask you a final question. Getting back to all the colors came out. You write a book and it's done and the book comes out, but your dad isn't here. You know, when you wrote a book about your dad, it's about your dad, but your dad isn't here to enjoy the book. Are you able to embrace the book and embrace it coming out? Or is there just a profound sadness that takes away a little of the traditional joy of a book release?
1: There was not a joy around this book release. And I am still trying to work through exactly why, because I, I don't know that I don't know that this is true, but there must be something to the idea that I spent the, you know, spent so much of the last year of his life with him. And then I immediately started, writing down stories about him. And then I started working on the book and living and trying to provide perspective to things we did together, things he said our life. And then you have the anticipation of a book release. You know, it's always exciting when a book is coming out because of course it is. And so that whole time period takes us up through to the day the book's going to be released. And I, I don't, I don't think any amount of anything could have, changed how I felt after the book came out, right? Like, even if it was like a, you know, on Good Morning America or whatever the pinnacle of, of book life is, I still think there's something going on where I'm so thrilled that I have this beautiful little book with a stylized portrait of my dad and I've commemorated what that relationship was. But now I there's nothing to look forward to and I don't mean in my life in general. I mean, I get it with him. And with like, I'm not building anything about him anymore. Now it's all in the past and that's a weird place. And I'm trying to figure out what the emotion around that is.
0: It's very interesting because normally a book comes out and you have those emotions anyway, like the book comes out, you're super excited. You're super excited. This is going to be great. And then two weeks pass and you're like, Oh yeah. So that's it. Like it's over. Yeah. And you yeah. have the double. I, I've- yeah, yeah
1: I've, I've always found there's like a hangover to a book coming out.
0: Hundred percent. I mean,
1: I, I, I do wonder for authors who like get picked by Oprah, whether like that is not the case, right? Like whether they're really living in some sort of the anticipation and the reality have can coexist and they are at the same level. I don't know. Uh-uh. But for me, I've always I've always felt like, oh, wow, now that's done. And I've got a little bit of emptiness in me. Whether it's having told a story and now it's told. And, and with this one in particular, the, the emptiness is bigger and deeper and the sadness is sadder. It's all just been magnified because it, it's about my dad, I think.
0: I just want to say, I just think, and I think this is a truth of this book. I think it's probably a truth of your experience through your career. It's definitely a truth of my experience in my career. You get hyped for the moments like book releases coming out. Uh, big TV appearance, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And yeah. the truth of the matter is the moments that are the best moments are like sitting here with a cup of whatever, having a really good conversation for an hour. And too often we look past the conversation and think what's next. And the joys of it all are the little moments and the process and sitting there on your porch in South Carolina, writing 700 words with a cup of sweet tea by your side. Like those are actually the moments. Yeah. And I think too often we forget that.
1: Oh, I I completely... Agree. The moments when I live in the like, and and I try to write about about this in the book. The moments when I live in like the joy of the little things. Like my dad was very very good at that. I am not so good at that. But the moments when I can find that, I have so much peace and satisfaction. And yet, it's. I I find it hard to build that into my routine. So I'm feeling that every single day I'm getting much better at it than I was five years ago, but man, the amount of things I do and you do that I'm relying on other people to like show up in a way to like provide my satisfaction. I need to like get those down to as low as is humanly possible.
0: hundred thousand percent agree. Yeah. Okay. I seriously, I love the book. I really appreciate Thanks, your time. And uh, yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Yeah, thank you. And do your listeners know that you drink out of a Reese's mug?
0: Hey, why are you judging me?
1: <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, I want a candy mug that I can drink my coffee out of. It's pretty great.
0: Yeah, It's like the size <laughs> of my head. So thank you.
1: It's so it looks like a weapon.
0: I want to thank today's guest, Kate Fagan, for joining me on Two Writers and Yang. You can follow Kate on Twitter at KateFagan3 and visit her website, byKateFagan.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving it a nice review. I make no dollars for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the Exceptional MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.